0: There is nothing in the world quite as wonderful as a promise. When I make a promise to you, I reach into your unpredictable future and I make at least one thing in your life predictable. A promise is a known in the unknown. It's an island of sureness in a sea of uncertainty. You see, a promise is one of life's greatest treasures because it's an investment in our future. And the fact that God has made specific promises to His people is one of the wonders of His grace. We call His special promises covenants. God wants to fellowship with His people. Even after we rebel against Him, God still makes promises and sets terms for the relationship He desires with us. Amazingly, God interjects His promises when we least deserve them. I mean, on the heels of humanity's greatest failures, God countered with a covenant. When the first man lost paradise, after a perverted world was cleansed with water, when God broke up the rebel party at the Tower of Babel, even when God's own people Israel failed to enter the promised land, Every time it seemed we were determined to snuff out the light on our own future, God stepped in and relit a candle. He struck a new deal. He instituted a new covenant that revived our hope and our dream for a better life. You see, the Bible is the story of how God keeps reaching into a future that we keep trying to make bleak. That He created us by breathing into Adam, the breath of life, into his nostrils, the breath of life. And even though we sinned against him, God is recreating in us something better than before by breathing his promises into our future. You see, the Bible is all about the covenant promises that God makes with mankind. You know, we normally divide our Bible into two sections, Old Testament and New Testament. Did you know The word testament is an old English term for covenant. It's actually the old covenant and the new covenant. Think of a last will and testament. My testament is an agreement between me and my heirs. No one can ignore my will and testament and just do as they please. A testament sets out terms and conditions for the disbursement of my estate. And this is what God does when He institutes a covenant. He wants to disperse His grace, but His covenants lay out the terms. You see, your Bible's table of contents might be divided into two testaments or covenants. But God has actually instituted seven different covenants with mankind. We've been discussing them. The Edenic covenant and the Adamic covenant and the Noaic, in the Abrahamic, and the Mosaic covenants. The last of these covenants is the deal that Jesus strikes on the cross, the new covenant. But the bridge between Moses and Jesus is a special covenant that God made with David. We call it appropriately the Davidic covenant. And this is this week's topic in our Connecting the Dots series. Now remember the last two covenants that we've discussed. After mankind's revolt at the Tower of Babel, God chose one man named Abraham. God's plan of redemption became a family business. Call it Abraham and Sons. I mean, God promised Abraham and his heirs three things. A parcel of real estate, a great nation, and a descendant through whom the world would be blessed. Here's Abraham's covenant in a nutshell, land, nation, blessing. And like a last will and testament, God clarified who would inherit this vital covenant. It passed down from Abraham to his son Isaac, to Isaac's son Israel, and to Israel's 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. God would bring salvation into the world through the children of Israel. This is why God wanted to protect his people. He wanted to put a hedge about the nation. For either annihilation or assimilation would have thwarted his plan. You see, God's strategy for Abraham's family was to stand out among the nations of the world. To walk in his ways and to reflect his glory. And so he brought them to the mountain of God to establish a covenant through Moses. This covenant also consisted of three promises. God gave them the law and the sacrifice and a list of blessings and curses. Here's how the old covenant worked. An obedient Israel would overflow with blessing, whereas a disobedient nation would suffer under God's curse. But either way, God would be glorified. By blessing or by cursing, the world would realize that the Almighty God was dictating Israel's destiny. And yet, sadly, over Israel's history, the people experienced far more cursing than they did blessing. They refused to adhere to God's law. They followed after other gods. Rather than trust in God, they sought for a king like their neighboring nations. They wanted to follow a human leader they could see with their eyes. Their first king, Saul, looked apart, but he lacked a heart. Saul was rejected by God, and God chose a king, a man after his own heart, a young shepherd boy named David. But what a man he became! David was a flawed man, but he was a man full of faith. He was a warrior and a worshiper. And into both arenas, he brought this incredible, this intense passion for God. During the reigns of David and his son Solomon, Israel experienced a golden age of God's blessing. For the first time, and I might add, for the last time, sadly, Israel expanded to fill most of the borders that God had promised. One day, King David was strolling along the portico of his palace. He was surveying the Jerusalem skyline when he noticed a stark inconsistency the king was conducting affairs of state in this palatial mansion while the worship of God was being carried out in a rustic tent it just wasn't right you see David understood that God overflows the heavens but his abode on earth his temple wasn't consistent with his glory It was just a few animal skins over some bronze poles. I mean, the gods of other nations all had magnificent temples dedicated in their honor. Why not the God of Israel? When foreign ambassadors visited Jerusalem, the holy city, they saw the king in his palace, but they saw God in a tent. It was an insult to the Almighty. So David wanted to build God a temple. But when he asked for permission, God refused. God was tougher on David than Gwinnett County Planning. (laughs) David was the king, yet God still denied him a building permit. David, though, went on to purchase the property and quarry the stone and cut the cedar and gather the gold and recruit the artisans. God let David make all of the logistical preparations, but it would be up to his son Solomon to build the temple. And yet, in response to David's noble desire to build God a house, God blessed David with a covenant. God promised to build David a house. Not a literal house, mind you, but a political house. A dynasty of David's descendants would rule over God's people. You remember Saul's son had tried to succeed his father, yet failed. But beginning with David, Israel became a patriarchal monarchy. A son of David will sit on the throne of his father forever. You know, when we speak of the British monarchy, we call it the House of Windsor. Well, from now on, Israel will be ruled over by the House of David. In 2 Samuel 7, God delivers to Nathan the prophet a message for King David. This promise we've just described. Let's read it. First hand, beginning in verse 10. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more, as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all of your enemies. Here God reaffirms to David the land promise that he made to Abraham. Now several times throughout her history, Israel was uprooted from her spot along the fertile crescent. But ultimately, God will plant Israel in the land and give Israel rest from her enemies. A son of David will rule over this land. Reminds me of a cartoon. An American Indian, he's having this powwow with an Israeli official when the chief confesses, quite frankly, in our case, the land, for deal, the land for peace deal, it didn't work very well. And it won't work for Israel either. God promised Abraham and the sons of David both peace and their land. Remember, the earth belongs to God. He gives parcels to whomever He pleases. And the land we call Israel or Canaan was given to David. But Nathan continues with these amazing promises. David wanted to build God a house. Instead, we're told, the Lord tells you that He will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest from your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne Of his kingdom forever. A seed from David's own body. A flesh and blood heir. A son of David will reign over Israel. And build God a temple. And this son of David will have a special relationship with God. In verse 14. God speaks of Israel's king. I will be his father. And he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men, but my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. You remember God stripped the kingdom from Saul and gave it to another, to David, but not so with David's heir. God will chasten him when needed, but he will never reject him. Now the immediate fulfillment of this promise was David's son Solomon. When his father died, Solomon assumed the throne of Israel. He built God a glorious temple, and God made Israel great among the nations. But it didn't take long before the house of David needed the correction that God promised in the covenant. Toward the end of his own life, Solomon strayed from God. You remember he multiplied wives, foreign women, 700 wives and 300 concubines. How does the wisest man on earth end up with a thousand mother-in-laws? That's a mystery to me. But his pagan wives led Solomon and Israel into idolatry. And according to the covenant, God fulfilled His promise by disciplining the house of David. In fact, the next 500 years of history was a series of spankings. When the kings of Israel and Judah strayed from God's law, God would raise up a foreign army to attack and subjugate His people. When the kings walked obediently, God would bless them with peace and prosperity. God promised David and his sons, that they would be disciplined, but they would never be deserted. 2 Samuel 7 verse 16 seals the deal. He says, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. What a colossal promise. It transcends, really, Solomon and the 400-year monarchy that followed. God looked down the halls of history And he promised David that he would never be without an heir to sit upon his throne. Apparently, God's promise to Solomon, like so many biblical prophecies, had a dual fulfillment. Remember, he had said, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Solomon built a temple, but his throne wasn't forever. In 586 B.C., the Davidic dynasty came to an end. The Babylonians sacked Jerusalem, and they took David's heir, King Zedekiah at the time, off to Babylon. He died there in Babylon, a prisoner. When this happened, the prophets, though, they reverted back to the covenant that God made with David. They saw in the covenant a future king of the lineage of David who would reign forever. You see, like many of the Old Testament prophecies, the Davidic covenant was a dual prophecy, Its immediate partial fulfillment was Solomon and his successors, but its ultimate quintessential realization was this future king, this eternal king that would sit upon God's forever throne. You see, when a new king took the throne in Israel, he was always anointed with oil. The priest would take the ram's horn and pour the oil out over his head, it would coat him with the oil. And of course, the oil was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. The king would need God's Spirit to rule wisely. Thus, all Israeli kings were called, in a sense, the Anointed One. But in light of the Davidic covenant, this term took on a special meaning. The Hebrew word Messiah, or its Greek equivalent, Christos, or Christ, they both mean Anointed One. And they became titles for the eternal king who would sit on David's forever throne. The Messiah or the Christ. These terms answered the Davidic covenant. The implication here is astonishing when you think about it. Since Messiah, God's ultimate eternal king, is David's heir and sits on David's throne, and since David's throne is the throne of Israel, that means that Israel will one day rule the world. Imagine a tiny little country like Israel, destined to be a world-governing empire. I mean, this is just like God, though, when you think about it. God always chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He always chooses the weak things of the world to confound the mighty. And so He chose Israel. You know, if God were concerned with earthly criteria, Messiah would be a U.S. president or the leader of the European Union, or the ultimate Chinese premier. But no, God picks a besieged nation in a sl- with a slim population. He chooses them for world domination. Messiah will sit on David's throne and reign from Israel. Now God recognized the irony of His choices, and that's why He went to great effort to track His promises through the various covenants that we've been studying. You see, as far back as the Garden of Eden, God promised a seed would be born that would become a Savior. Genesis 3, verse 15, we've talked about this. The Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel. Genesis 3, verse 15, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Eve would bear a son who would destroy the authority of Satan. But you see, Eve was the mother of all living. Eve sired many sons, so God had to narrow down the lineage of the Savior to a man named Abraham. In Genesis 22, verse 18, God promised Abraham a special seed. He said, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But I mean, 12 tribes came from Abraham. So who was the seed who would become the Savior? Well, God further narrowed the choices to one of the tribes of Abraham. He chose Judah to be the royal line. Father Israel said of his son, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. The Savior, or Shiloh, would come through the lineage of Judah. But the tribe of Judah had many families. That's why Isaiah 11 verse 1 predicts, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Or literally, he'll be the anointed one. Messiah will come from Jesse's family. He'll be the branch or the stem off Jesse's limb on Abraham's family tree. But Jesse, he had eight sons. His youngest son wasn't even present when Samuel came to select a new king for Israel. They had to fetch the kid out of the fields. But this humble sheep herder was the man that God chose to shepherd his people Israel. This was the man who would become the great king. Jesse's stem was a boy named David. And it was from his loins, his own body, that a forever king would rise to rule God's forever kingdom. You see, all along, God was connecting the dots. From Eve to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah to Jesse to David, God didn't want us to miss Messiah. God was sending a seed, His Son, into the world to redeem us from our sin and to reign over us in His love. And God went out of His way to point us to Him. We don't have to canvas the globe to find Messiah. God's GPS picks out the land. Israel, that's where you'll find Him. We don't have to comb through the genealogies of the human race. God earmarks the family of Abraham and the sons of David. He even traces David's lineage down to a single person This is why the whole Old Testament, all 39 books of it, from Genesis to Malachi, it all comes together in one verse. The gospel begins, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Whoops, there it is. The theme theme runs the length of your Bible and culminates right there in Jesus Christ. He is the promised son of David. He is the son of Abraham. God raised up prophet after prophet so we wouldn't miss him. It gives weight to Revelation 19 verse 10. For the testimony of Jesus is indeed the spirit of prophecy. This is why both Gospels, of Mat- the Mat- Gospel of Matthew and Luke, they begin with Jesus' genealogy. Matthew traces Jesus' roots back to David through his son Solomon and proves Jesus to be the legal heir of the Davidic covenant. Luke follows the bloodline from David's son Nathan to Jesus' mom Mary to prove that Jesus was a genetic heir of David. He possessed both a legal claim and a natural right to sit on David's throne to rule both Israel and all the earth. You know, it's interesting. The ancient Jews, they stored their genealogies in the temple. And when it burned in 70 AD, their records went up in smoke. That God allowed the destruction of the genealogies was proof that Messiah had already come. For if he came afterwards, he could have never proved his genealogy. He could have never proved his pedigree without those records. You see, Jesus was the ultimate heir of the promises God made to David. Like Solomon, God chastised Jesus, but he never rejected him. On the cross, Jesus was judged and punished, not for his own sins, but for ours. Even today, like Solomon, the son of David is building a temple. A temple for God. That temple is you and I. We're living stones in the church of Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting. When Mary birthed Jesus, it had been 580 years since a son of David had sat on the throne of Israel. How exciting it must have been for her to hear the angel's words. The words he spoke to her in Luke chapter 1. You see, the Old Testament was full of prophecies that not only traced Messiah's lineage, but colored in what we could expect from his life and his work and his ministry. Of the tree of Abraham, of the sons of David, there was only one person who fit all of the prophecies spoken of concerning Messiah, and that was Jesus. Take the prophet Isaiah, for example. Isaiah wrote his prophecy around 700 B.C., That's about the time Rome was founded. That's 70 years before the Greeks held the first Olympic Games. And that was seven centuries before the angel Gabriel made his visit to a young woman named Mary with the promise of a son. Isaiah, he stood up for God in a terrible time. One of David's successors, Manasseh, was king over God's people in the days of Isaiah. Manasseh was so evil, he single-handedly provoked the Babylonian spanking of the Davidic dynasty. In fact, this king was the one who later ordered Isaiah to be sawn in two. You might say Manasseh and his executioner, they had this little business deal going. They'd split the prophet. Anyway. Isaiah, he was labeled a seer. That's what he was called, a seer. He saw stuff. He saw into the future. And much of what he saw was Jesus. God gave him amazing insights about the future Messiah. In fact, Isaiah 7 verse 14 predicts that Messiah will be born of a virgin. The very same verse tells us that he'll be given the name Emmanuel or God with us. Isaiah 9 predicts that much of Messiah's ministry will occur in or around the region of Galilee and that he'll reach out to the Gentiles. Isaiah 35 predicts miracles. The deaf will hear and the blind will see. Isaiah 50 predicts Messiah will be beaten and mocked and spit upon. Isaiah 53 paints a picture of his cruel death on a cross. He'll be executed among thieves. He'll be buried in a rich man's tomb. Eventually, he'll rise from the dead. Isaiah charts Messiah's life from birth to resurrection. And that's just Isaiah. One of Isaiah's contemporaries, the prophet Micah, foretold in chapter 5, verse 2, that Messiah would be born in the town of Bethlehem. He predicted his very birthplace. Psalm 22, verse 16 tells us that Messiah's hands and feet will be pierced. In fact, Psalm 22 was written around 1000 B.C. It depicts Christ on the cross in vivid detail 500 years before the Persians had even invented crucifixion as a mode of execution. It forecasts how He'll be mocked and how His bones won't be broken and how men will gamble for His robe. Psalm 16 predicts the resurrection, that God will not leave Messiah in the grave to to see corruption, but he will be raised up to new life. Psalm 41 verse 9 tells us that in advance that Jesus will be betrayed by a friend. Zechariah 9 verse 9 predicts that his journey into Jerusalem will be on the back of a donkey. Daniel chapter 9 is one of the most amazing Messianic prophecies in all the Bible. Daniel's a Jew. He's living in Babylon. Yet God shows him Israel's future. Israel will return to the land. Jerusalem will be restored and rebuilt. And the son of David, the Messiah, will fulfill all of God's promises to Israel. And Daniel sees the timeline. He says, from the command to rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of Messiah the Prince, there will be 69 weeks or 483 years. History tells us that the Persian emperor, Artaxerxes, he gave the decree to rebuild Jerusalem on March the 14th, 445 B.C. Now, if you mark off 483 years, or exactly 173,880 days, you arrive at the date April the 6th, 32 A.D. That was the very day Jesus made his triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem. Messiah presented himself to the nation. In Daniel 9, God pinpoints the exact day Messiah appears to Israel over 550 years before it happens. Daniel 9 verse 26 goes on to say that shortly thereafter, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. The phrase implies a violent death. He'll be executed, but not for his own crimes. He'll be put to death for someone else's sin. Obviously, Daniel 9 speaks of the crucifixion of Jesus. The chapter is one of the most fascinating in all the scripture. It puts Messiah on the clock. But but that was only one of many prophecies. In fact, there are over 300 Old Testament prophecies that predict details of Messiah's ministry. I mean, when you think of the probabilities of one man just accidentally fulfilling all 300 of these prophecies... I mean, you realize the certainty of his identity. There there is a classic book. It's by Peter Stoner, the former head of the math and astronomy department of the Pasadena City College. Peter Stoner, he wrote a book entitled Science Speaks. And in his book, Stoner, a mathematician, calculates the probability of a single man fulfilling just eight, just eight now, of the 300 Old Testament prophecies that concern Jesus. And the probability that he reached was 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's the number 1 in front, followed by 17 zeros. It's a big number. Now keep in mind, the probability of you dying in a fire is 1 in 40,000. That's a 4 followed by 4 zeros. The odds of you getting struck by a baseball at the Braves game is 1 in 300,000. That's 3 trailed by 5 zeros. And the possibility of you getting hit by a lightning bolt is 1 in 2 million. That's a 2 followed by 6 zeros. And yet the probability of Jesus accidentally fulfilling just 8 of those 300 Old Testament prophecies randomly is 1 in 10 followed by 17 zeros. I mean, your chance of getting struck by lightning is 50 billion times better than Jesus accidentally fulfilling just 8 of those prophecies. That's not counting the other 292. Let me provide a little more perspective. Think of a bed of silver dollars, 2 feet deep, covering the entire state of Texas. Now paint one of those silver dollars red, then mix them all up and skydive into the middle of the pile. The odds of you drawing out the one red coin are the same odds of Jesus fulfilling by chance just eight of these 300 Old Testament prophecies. Here's the point. The only explanation for the Bible's fulfilled prophecies is that Jesus is who He said He was, He is the Messiah, the Son of David. And yet, if the evidence is so overwhelming, why did the Jews reject Jesus as their Messiah? Well, the answer is, they overlooked some prophetic details. They latched on to what they wanted to believe and ignored the rest. For example, Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14 was a favorite messianic passage among the Jews. Daniel writes, I was watching, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Now, I mean, the Jews like this idea of a Messiah coming in the clouds, Superman, coming out of the sky, you know, to, to fight off the bullies and to resurrect his kingdom. They like that idea. But when Jesus started washing feet, that's when they balked. They weren't so sure of that. They liked this flying, reigning Messiah. They thought Messiah should be served, not serve. A humble Messiah didn't fit the Jewish expectation. You see, they didn't consider other Old Testament prophecies, other Messianic prophecies, like Isaiah 42, where where God says, my servant, that's what he calls him. I have put my spirit upon him. The anointed one is my servant. He will not cry out nor raise his voice. A bruised reed he will not break. That's not the Messiah the Jews wanted. They hoped Messiah would break some legs and raise his voice and throw his weight around. You see, the Jews saw Messiah as a political leader. They read passages like Isaiah chapter 9. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. I mean, the Jews saw Messiah as a political powerhouse. He would shoulder the government on his own, usher in a new age for Israel. They didn't realize his first priority was the condition of their soul. You know, it's interesting, the Jewish rabbis at the time of Jesus, they had a difficult time with the thought of one Messiah doing all that the Old Testament had foretold he would do. Some rabbis taught that there were actually two messiahs. Had to be. Too much to get done. Messiah ben Joseph, or the son of Joseph, was the servant of the people. Whereas Messiah ben David, the son of David, was the mighty ruler who would defeat all his enemies. Other rabbis taught that the messianic prophecies were conditional on the Jews' reaction. If they were faithful, yes, Messiah would come to earth riding on the clouds. But if they weren't, He would come mocking them on the back of a donkey. They didn't see how there was room for both scenarios. The prophet Zechariah predicted that Jesus would come riding on a donkey. That was fulfilled on Palm Sunday when he entered the city of Jerusalem. But Daniel 7 foresees the Messiah riding on the clouds. And Jesus will fulfill that promise too. Remember at his trial before Caiaphas? Jesus was ordered, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus replied, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You want Him coming on the clouds? I'm coming. I'll be coming. Jesus will also fulfill David's vision, Daniel's vision but it will be hereafter or later. The point is, is that Messiah comes twice. The first time he comes to earth is as a suffering servant, intent on salvation. But he comes again at the end of the age as a conquering king. Jesus came to save his enemies. He returns to crush his enemies. Messiah makes these dual visits to earth but he also had a dual nature. Messiah was the son of David, but he was also the son of God. He was the God-man. This was what Jesus brought up after the Jews approached him in the temple and tried to trap him. You remember after the exchange, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ or the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, Oh, the son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, and here he quotes from the Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Good question. Messiah was the son of David, but he was also David's Lord or his master. The king had only one master, and that was God. So is David here calling the Messiah God? Well, indeed he was. Jesus was pointing out that the Messiah would be both human and divine, both the son of David and the son of God. Why did the Jewish leaders crucify their Messiah? Well, they failed to connect the dots. They failed to put it together. They never recognized Jesus' dual nature and dual visits. Let me close this morning with one more Messianic prophecy. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. There the Lord speaks. I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell in safety. Now this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. I love that name. The Lord saves. The Lord makes right. The Lord gives us his righteousness. This is Jesus Christ, Messiah of Israel and King of the whole earth. The Mosaic covenant, it set the bar of righteousness out of our reach. No matter how hard Israel tried to act right, the sin in their heart sabotaged their efforts. Spanking after spanking made it obvious that God's people needed a Savior. And that's exactly what the Davidic covenant promised. You see, on our own, we pull up short. We don't make it. But when we trust in Jesus, the Lord of righteousness shares with us His righteousness. He makes us righteous. As it was said of Abraham, he believed in the Lord and God accounted it to him for righteousness. You see, the world we live in, the world we occupy is wrong side up. But Jesus is all about rightness. And how he makes us right again is our subject next week when we talk about the new covenant. Lord, thank you this morning for your word. And thank you for these amazing covenants, these promises. Lord, thank you for helping us to put these dots together, to connect these things. Lord, I pray that you would help us to to leave after these weeks with a a great understanding of your plan for the ages, of your work for your people and in our lives. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that you are king that Jesus, you have the credentials, that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you that you are the promised one of old, that you sit on the throne even today. And Lord, I pray that if there's a person here in this room who's never bowed their knee to you, who's still bucking, if they're still the captain of their own ship, if they've never surrendered the authority, the reign of their life to Jesus, I pray that they would do so today. Lord, you warn us that one day every, st- stubborn, every stubborn neck will be broken. That every threat to your authority will be put down. That one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Today, Lord, help us to willingly humble ourselves and bow before the great King and before the throne of David, the King of Israel, Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.